All right, welcome everybody to the Sprint Jump Throw Performance Podcast. I'm Joel Reinhardt, along with Andrew Cormier. Uh, very lucky today to have on the show Dr. Ken Clark. Um, he is at Westchester University and also does a lot of work with you know, United States track and field. So thanks for coming on, Doc. Yeah, uh, really excited to be here and, and talk shop with you guys. And please call me Ken. And, and uh, yeah, look forward to, to speaking with you and talking uh, all things speed. Sweet. All right, we'll dive right in. So the um, touched on it briefly beforehand, but one of the things that it was on Twitter recently, you were doing the uh, a presentation for Jonas Dodu's um, what sort I'm looking for internship, and uh, you got into a little bit of like running too pretty or being too front side, and how that can lead to just kind of spinning the wheels, and it might look nice in a slow mo Instagram video. But then in reality, is it actually getting you from A to B faster? Um, so I guess we can go several different ways with this, but maybe like, what do you see as potentially like the, the route to which somebody gets to the point where they're quote running too pretty. And then how do we then peel them back out of it? Yeah. Great, great question. Happy to discuss this topic. Uh, I love social media and Twitter, although sometimes, uh, you know, 140 characters is, is not enough to fully give uh, justice to a, to a topic. Um, so yeah, for, for context, um, that, that clip uh, from the virtual internship with, with Jonas and Speedworks, you know, was um, kind of presented in a, in a range of, uh, of things to be looking for. And, and so I kind of have had gone from development, uh, team sport athlete or developmental sprinter and and all of the issues that you kind of see with them that we're probably fully aware of, you know, bad posture, bad backside mechanics. Um, and, and we can certainly get into those issues as well. And then kind of um, was just touching upon something that we've um, seen only at the very elite end of the, of the spectrum um, with a, you know, a small portion of our USA track and field population, but, um, but it does exist. And, you know, I'd say, and maybe a, a quarter of our, uh, elite men, and I'm, I'm talking like, uh, you know, the guys who make it to semis and, and um, finals at the national championships. In, in practice, we, we see that they're what I would call just a, a little bit overly front side, um, you know, where, where the mechanics are uh, losing something on the, you know, the propulsive side of things during ground contact, where maybe they're, they're just kind of cycling in place, perhaps a little, a little bit too much, um, you know, great as far as not having any uh, limb swing back behind them during the flight flight, uh, flight phase. Great as far as the, you know, the, the touchdown position, you know, arguably they're, they're too forward upon initial ground contact. Um, and I think it's just a happy medium of, um, you know, certainly not wanting to be overly backside and, and we'll get to that. I mean, that, that is still, uh, you know, w- where one doesn't want to be. But just finding a, um, you know, a good balance of having the mechanics shifted appropriately front side and, and not overdoing anything. In the, in the wake of that uh, Twitter uh, post, I had a number of really productive conversations with people saying, well, you know, isn't this just a very small number of people that you're seeing it in? And isn't, isn't you know, front side mechanics still something that you want to generally encourage? And the, the answer to both of those questions is a resounding yes. I mean, this is just in a very, very small percentage of the elite population that perhaps where it's getting overdone, you could say, to the to the detriment perhaps of some other things. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to kind of discuss it more in depth here by saying, hey, if I'm working with a, a team sport athlete or a developmental sprinter like our sprinters at Westchester, I can absolutely say we've never seen that. There's never been a case where the person is just, you know, too front side, right? So for almost everyone that the, you know, I, I think that's involved in team sports or developmental sprinters, you know, you're always going to be encouraging them to try to shift their mechanics more front side. It was more something that had just come up that was interesting, you know, out of the emphasis on front side mechanics that's really been focused on at the elite level through the influence of, of Ralph Mann and, you know, and deserving of all the praise that he gets. And I've had a chance to work with Ralph for the last five years and he's had a tremendous impact on me. It's been a great experience, but, but even, you know, Ralph had, had made the observation that at least in a small percentage of population of the U S men, it's getting kind of overdone. So, so that was kind of the, the context of, uh, of that uh, little quit uh, uh, clip on, 
on Twitter. And, and, you know, again, as you said, Joel, we can go a, a bunch of different directions with this conversation. It'll be interesting. I, I think, you know, in those runners where maybe it's happening just a little bit too much in, in practice, you know, it's just, um, knowing that they're, you know, trying to emphasize, Hey, uh, be in front so far in front with everything they do, just, just at the risk of, of not um, pushing or projecting enough, frankly. And, and, you know, Hey, the emphasis has still got to be on, on running fast. If, if it's a rep where you're, you know, going for a full speed trial, right? Obviously there's a lot of reps where maybe there's, it's a sub-maximal run or there's, there's other things that are the goal, but if you're going all out, that's the goal of the trial then, you know, um, finding a happy medium, I think, is key in that elite population. So, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the post spark, like it made me think in my head, cause it was, I knew it was in the like elite elite population where these guys without focusing on it are going to be in almost, you know, kind of the picture perfect theoretical model. And so when they super focus on it, they go to the extreme potentially, but then uh, in my head, I was thinking about it when those same concepts, I see it pop up in field sport athletes, where if you're in sort of, you know, maybe not super backside, but more backside than you would like to see. And we're trying to get them more front side. I've seen ways where it's like, if you bring, I don't know, the easy way to say it is like, if it's postural issues and they're focusing on fixing it just simply by volitional leg activity, without actually fixing the postural issues, then you see it's not, if you just watch a video of it, you wouldn't say, oh, that's too front side. It's much more front side than they were, but then you don't see it carry over into a competitive setting where they're not actively thinking about it. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I think, you know, kind of a broader, really interesting question is the, the difference between what we see and what the goal is in practice versus what's observed in competition, you know, and, and kind of what the, the goal mechanics are in competition. And then also, you know, what the difference is between practice and competition mechanics. So if we, we start with track and fields, cause I think that's always a little easier. Uh, you know, obviously hundred meter sprinters don't have to worry about a ball or somebody coming to tackle them in the middle of the sprint. Right. Yeah. Whereas a, a football or a soccer player would, you know, I, I still don't think there's any sprinter in competition where we look at their mechanics and we're like, Oh, they're two front side in mm -hmm. competition. Right. So it's, it's definitely an understanding of, Hey, what they do in practice, you know, needs to be at X, you know, model with a certain amount of bandwidth, knowing that they're going to, you know, that the mechanics are going to become a little bit, uh, you know, less fit to the model in a competition scenario and in, in almost every athlete that we've observed. Right. And then with, with team sport athletes, you know, I think it, it comes down to uh, trying to get them to, to hit the positions that are, you know, we would consider technically sound when they're sprinting in practice, um, knowing that in a game situation, the constraints of the game are going to change what they look like, whether it's because they're wearing pads and a helmet for football, whether it's because they're, you know, chasing a, a soccer ball, but may have to put on the brakes, you know, to change direction. I mean, the, the constraints of the game are just going to change those mechanics, um, you know, in almost every case in a game situation. I guess my, my thought um, on this has always been that number one in our, in our team sport athletes, I guess if we, if we shift the, the conversation there for a minute, yeah. We want to teach them the, the right way to sprint, you know, just so they can sprint better in practice so they can sprint more safely in practice. So we can expose them to a greater stimulus with a, at least theoretically decreased risk of injury. I mean, number one, chasing the stimulus, which I view as a good thing is the first and foremost reason to, to teach proper mechanics. And, and, you know, hopefully we get a, a, a performance bump along with that, that they can run faster it, you know, because we've taught them proper mechanics. And then if we get, you know, even a, a slight degree of carryover to a game, if the posture or the pelvic position is even slightly better in a game situation, I mean, that then it's a win-win, right? If the wide receiver catches a long pass and it's, you know, it's a race to the end zone and, and we can even see that the mechanics have just, you know, the posture and the, the pelvis and the you know, the leg swing is even slightly more front side than, than to me, then that that's what we're, we're looking for all the while understanding that, Hey, if the running back is, you know, in the hole and then cutting and changing directions to avoid the linebacker. Well, of course, 
you know, when they initially break into, you know, into the sprint from that point, it's not going to look like a, a sprinter, you know, at the 60 meter mark or the hundred meter dash. So I think just trying to keep those two things in mind is really key, at least, you know, from my perspective, you know, what do we want them to look like in practice? Like what, what model are we teaching them towards in practice? And then what, what changes, you know, should we expect in a competition scenario, whether that's, 100 meter yeah. sprinter in a race or whether that's a football soccer you know player in a game so to speak so yeah and i've been like seeing and I've, I've done a fair amount where it's like i'm sitting at football practice and i just like take slow-mo videos on my phone of like receiver get offs or something like that yep. and recognizing that especially if there's a defender right there like hip height that's the biggest thing in like sports versus like a just running on a track is like you know, you have to like, oh, I'm about to get hit or I'm about to kick a ball or whatever. Yep. So you end up just being a little more squatty. Yeah. Um, but if we can, if we can be a little more squatty because of the constraints of the game, but we're able to just like overall control our pelvis a little bit better. Like I see that as like, that's where I've gotten athletes to like click like, oh, okay. I feel that, you know, like, hey, if you don't, you know, I guess this is going to be a quick transition to the re we talked about it briefly, but it's the reason that boo doesn't like wickets. Um, but is like, if you're not getting front side at all, because you have no control over your pelvis and then you're simply focused on like, Oh, I'm gonna get my knees up in front without addressing the true pelvic issues. Then, um, then when you're not thinking about the knees, it can kind of bleed away in terms of the pelvic control. Yeah, absolutely. Of, I mean, yeah, attacking that pelvic, and the pelvis are key. Yeah. yeah. What are your like go-tos when you're like a, in a um, practical setting when it's like, all right, I'm trying to attack pelvic control in, you know, that anterior posterior plane. What are your kind of go-tos for that? Yeah. I've had some really interesting conversations with Jordan Mendiguchi over the last uh, six months or so. And I, I consider, uh, Jordan from, from Spain, you know, one of the foremost experts on this, just as far as, you know, working both with uh, athletes and patients in the clinic and also having a, a research background. And, you know, he's, he's influenced my thinking just um, in a way that it's, it's not just enough to, you know, try to work on technique or mechanics, but really need some sort of integrated approach where, you know, the, the physios or whoever else from the sports med team is, is working with the athlete in the, in the clinic, on the training table, et cetera, to address whatever limitations they might have from flexibility, mobility, strength, stability, weakness, and in combination with that, you know, being addressing it uh, from a technical standpoint, you know, when you're working on running mechanics and, uh, you know, maybe that's nothing, you know, that's no big revelation and, and maybe that's more just common sense. Right. But it, it takes, you know, I think a, an integrated approach probably to, to really make optimal changes um, in, in athletes, because I think, especially in our team sport athletes, just, just, uh, you know, if I take my researcher hat off and, and just put my coaching hat on, I mean, observationally, so, so many of them do have you know, probably some, some sort of physical limitations that are causing them, especially American football guys, right? I mean, as we all know, to be, you know, the majority of them are anterior pelvic tilt due to some sort of, you know, lack of flexibility. And, and if they physically can't get into that, you know, pelvic position, uh, to a large degree, any type of drill, cue, et cetera, that you throw at them could be limited in its success if that's the only way you address it. So, you know, I, I guess in a, in a more theoretical perspective, I'd say, well, you have to, you know, optimally address both kind of whatever their limitations are and where you're, you know, where you're cueing them, what drills you're doing with them. You know, I'll speak to um, one specific football player player that I, I train over the, the I know I've had um, a lot of conversations that with a with a physical therapist a DPT that I work with who who also works with this athletes and we're you know we're just constantly talking about the pelvic tilt of this athlete and hey how can we address this not just in how you know we're cueing and I do like wickets there's many many good coaches who don't right that's a different yeah. discussion for a different time or maybe for this time I don't know right many great coaches don't use them many great coaches do I, I do happen to like them but you know those have been one thing we've used with this athlete but it's you know, it's not just drills. I, I think there's cues, drills, and I think it also has to be addressed uh, with, you know, within the 
the limitations that the athlete has from a physical standpoint. I'm not sure if I answered your question or not, but I think that's the, that's the broader picture. Uh, and I think that's the way it's going, right? With sports science, sports med and strength and conditioning is this integrated approach where it's not just the track coach or the SNC coach and, and then the PT and the ATC are doing something different. I mean, it's, it's gotta be this blended, blended uh, approach, I think. So. Yeah, no doubt. If you're trying to just, you know, if the door frame is off, it doesn't matter how hard you try to slam the door, it's not going in. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we yeah. can, we can go right into that now if you want. It's like when sure. you, when you utilize like wickets, what do you, what are you looking for from like a landmark standpoint and how do you try to influence the athlete's attention while doing them to get the most out of it? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll give a shout out to uh, my friend and colleague, Jason Kilgore, who's the head track and field coach at, at Westchester. The, the majority of my experience using wickets has come as a, as a volunteer assistant sprints coach at Westchester. Um, so, you know, when I say, uh, uh, we, that, that's who I'm referring to, just kind of what we do with our speed and power athletes at, at Westchester with Wicket. So, um, you know, we, we try to take a, I guess you could say a targeted approach for um, many of our athletes will do, you know, uh, th this year is a totally different scenario. In a normal non-COVID year, you know, kind of fall preseason testing where just simple videotape and timing gates and, and an out video analysis where we know uh, stride rate, stride length, you know, top speed segment time, contact time, flight time, just kind of those basic uh, analyses. And, and from that, you can get some measures of, uh, you know, uh, contact distance, the distance to center of mass travels during a ground contact phase. And so that can kind of give you a pretty good um, picture of what the athlete does with their normal top speed mechanics, right? So normally for us, that's in September. It didn't happen this year, but that, that's normally in September. And then, so when we implement wickets and, and uh, we don't do anything rocket science, you know, we've traditionally used Vince Anderson spacings, uh, sometimes Ron Gregg, who also has excellent spacings and is a, a friend and a colleague, we've, we've used his variations as well. But we just, um, we have a lot of different options. And again, I don't think anything I'm saying is, is uh, you know, reinventing the wheel here, but, you know, we'll set up uh, six, six lanes or so and, and just match the end of the wicket run, you know, the last three, four wickets in the, in the lane to what we know that the athletes uh, free sprint stride length is. So we, you know, we can basically, what I would term as a targeted approach. So you're not just throwing darts at a dartboard and saying, Hey, this athlete might work here or that could work there, but you know, you know, you know, okay, well, they're going to be pretty close to their top speed towards the end of this run. And then, you know, that should work out much better if we have the wicket length set to basically um, what approaches their, their normal stride length on a, uh, uh, in a free sprint. We found kind of through experience over the last couple of years that athletes can run really fast at wicket lengths that are 95, 97, 100% of their free sprint stride length. So we, we did do an official study on that three years ago at this point, we're still in the process of writing that up. Um, and we found um, fly time through the wickets that were very fast after we had um, coached the athletes for like a five, six week period. So I'm not saying you can just take athletes and throw them into wickets and, you know, first rep it's a go, not, nothing like that. But, you know, we had, uh, we, we tested athletes in October, middle of October after they had a six week period of learning how to run through wickets and we found that we could get them running really fast with, with good mechanics. Now, back to your original question, Joel. I know I just took like five minutes to not answer a question. Um, that's how we use them. So uh, and I'll get to my team sport athletes, I guess, in a second. What we look for is, is really nothing special aside from, I guess, what you would consider, um, you know, the normal checklist of, of good top speed mechanics. So yeah. upright posture, basically neutral hips. Um, not reaching. That's clearly the number one thing in wickets is making sure that they're not reaching to hit the, you know, the stride lengths in the wickets, but that they can basically step over, push down or attack the ground or however you want to say it. Um, and, and that, you know, it looks like they're continuing to build momentum throughout the course of the, the wicket run, just qualitatively to your coaches, to your coach's eye that they're, you know, not, uh, not stepping out, not reaching out towards the end of the run. Um, so that, that's kind of, uh, you know, what we look for. 
as far as what we cue, um, again, from my experience, at, at least with our Westchester sprinters, it's when the, when the run doesn't go well, it's because they don't accelerate aggressively enough into the wickets. So actually that's the thing we end up coaching the most I found is just, Hey, those first seven steps they got, I mean, that's gotta be an aggressive maximal acceleration into the wickets to allow them to continue to build momentum throughout the course of the wickets. And then if you check that box, if the acceleration into the wickets is, is aggressive, then they can build momentum and can continue to push their way through the wickets as opposed to having the momentum die out. And then that's where they tend to step and reach. And that's where things kind of go haywire a little bit. So I guess, I, you know, and, and you know, for, for transparency, I, I certainly don't claim to be the best coach out there. There are may, many other people who are better coaches than I am. But I think, you know, my experience with those wickets is, you know, just kind of what I've seen, you know, at Westchester, what's worked for us, what hasn't worked for us, and I think where they where they can be beneficial. So um, with the with the team sport athletes, you know, I, I think it's a little bit different because um, a lot of times you have many more gross things that you need to change. And, and so I, I think I've had it not work with team sport athletes where I've done it and said, you know what, this just is not really – being effective for us. It's just not really been a good use of our time. And then I'll, I'll just go back to technical flies, which are one of my favorite things to do with team sport athletes. I've also had it work where it's like, okay, I cannot enact a change with this athlete, you know, just queuing or doing other drills, but when they, you know, forces the athlete to run through wickets, it seems to help. So I, I think, you know, for, for me, it can be effective. It's maybe more a little bit athlete dependent from, from my experience. So. Gotcha. So you just said technical flies. What do you, uh, I guess I've never seen. Uh, yeah, it's my own term. So if you haven't heard it before, that's probably just, it's just a buildup. Okay. I mean, it's just a fly, but you know, the only reason, I, <laughs> the only reason I would call it that or coin a phrase or whatever is, um, I don't know, just, just uh, from the athletes I've worked with, if you're trying to get a change to occur, if you do a full speed fly, you know, they just tend to gun it, right? They're just trying to hit the fastest fly 10 times they can. And sometimes that's, especially in team sport athletes, not with the best mechanics. You know, things get sloppy at a at 100%. Whereas it's, if you just kind of back it up a little bit and you tell the athlete, you instruct them, hey, this is it, 90, 95%. Or for athletes who aren't good with, you know, the percentages, you just say, hey, this is just a little bit less than full speed. Whatever full yeah. speed is, you just back that up. And you have them focus on just one thing. So, hey, you're, you're building up. You During the fly zone, it's just a little bit less than full speed. And I just want you focusing on, you know, up tall or hips tall or, you know, in front. Um, sometimes, you know, I like to cue just up tall and in front or, you know, tall and in front. Just to emphasize kind of the posture and, and the front side mechanics. Again, just, just totally speaking from an observ observational basis uh, and experience here, that sometimes is pretty effective. The athlete relaxes a little bit, literally and figuratively, you know, when they know that they're not being judged on that fly time, still time it, but, you know, they know that they're not going for a PR. It enables them to focus on just, you know, one thing from a motor learning standpoint, we know that if you guide their attention to, to too many things, obviously they'll focus on none. So just telling them to focus on one thing. And then ironically, you know, and I think this is true with team sport athletes, but a lot of developmental sprinters as well. If you tell them not to run at full speed, ironically, the times are still very fast. Maybe not their best, but damn close. You know, for athletes, like let's say they run a 10-yard fly for a football guy, for example, that's a, a one flat 10-yard fly when he's doing it all out, that you know, on a technical fly that's at 95%, that'll still be like a 103. You know, it ends up being like 102, 103, like really approaches full speed, even without the, you know, 100% intent. And so to me, that's a, it's a good uh, uh, plan B, if you will, if, if the wickets don't work for that athlete, that, that's still a really good strategy. Um, and, and sometimes we'll do those at the end of our or warm up on top speed days as well. So. Yeah. And even too, I think, I think I remember Cam Joss posting about this at some point, or maybe it was a podcast. I heard him talking about it, but he had like some super tension monsters who actually 
ran or PR their fly 10 when he told them to run at 95. I, I think it's a pretty commonly observed thing. I think uh, Rob uh, Assisi from, uh, yeah. from Illinois has also mentioned something very similar. You know, maybe not like PRs, but pretty darn yeah. close. Yeah, and you tell them just to back off, like very, very close to 100%. In yeah. yeah. Split times, so. I had that with women's soccer too, like telling them, like you said, I didn't call it a technical fly, but it was like, Hey, why don't you just focus on this like one, two things with posture? And I was like, I want you to just feel like you're really focusing on that and pumping that as hard as you can. But like, don't worry about it being your fastest ever. And we had girls legitimately hit like their best top speeds all off. Yeah. I, I, and I view that as a win-win, you know? I mean, obviously if the goal is to run fast that day, then you're running fast. And if the goal is to try to get them to be aware of a technical element that you're trying to fix while well, you're checking that box as well. So, so to me, it's a great way to train especially i think with team sport athletes although you know we, we've started to, to sprinkle that in just in our few outdoor practices so far this year with westchester sprinters as well so yeah yeah i think that it ends up being overall very useful in a team sport setting because we often have kids who are like they want to try so hard and it's, it's, it's sometimes like, like we have one kid on our football team who comes right to mind because he would almost yeah. be like holding his breath and you could see veins oh, in yeah. his neck. And it was like, Hey man, I love the effort, but if we actually want to go faster, you need to, yeah. you need to breathe. Yeah, it's li- I mean, it's literally just trying to muscle it. Right. I think yeah. you see that a lot in football athletes in particular. Yeah. And it's just terrible for pelvic position for yeah. posture and pelvic position. It just doesn't end up well. Yeah. So. And I was thinking about like your wicket statement too, in relation to like soccer with, a population that's so backside and how much, how aggressive they are in extension, like when they go to kick and how that carries over when you actually ask them to sprint at top speed. So it's like trying to get them to run even moderately fast while stepping over a wicket. I can only imagine how bad it would get for at least like most of my girls. So it's like, right. don't even give them the opportunity to think about that. Just like, Hey, here's like one technical thing I want you to think about while you run right now. Yeah. I, I think, you know, for every, uh, population that you may work with as a coach, you, know, you have to uh, evaluate whether or not that that's a, that's a drill that, that's going to, you know, get good return on investment. That's really what it comes down to. You know, I used to think in my early coaching days when I first came across wickets, which was about 10 years ago at this point, it's like, oh, you just set up the drill and it just takes care of everything, you know, barely need to coach. It just takes care of everything else. And that's obviously that was a naive thought. It, it needs to be coached up and practiced just like everything else to, to get good mechanics to come out of it. But yeah, it's just about figuring out if it's, if it's right for your population. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah we even did, this was the last off season, January of 20. Um, we had, when we were introducing some, we were, our early on max V stuff, we were, we had some, we didn't have light enough med balls. So we ended up using PVC pipes just as kind of like a forward, counterbalance yeah. i know cam joss has posted about yeah something. the med ball punch run yep. yeah and we all, we didn't have light enough med balls so we ended up just using the pvc just to have something in front and we did that in wickets and it went super well but then in like breaking it down after and like being critical we were like was it the wickets or was it the constraints so we're like oh we almost too threw many uh, our <laughs> Our research design wasn't good, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, the end result ended up being positive. So we're like, all right, but right. when we were breaking it down, we were like, so was the benefit from the forward constraint or the wickets more? So we, yeah, we should have broken it down on each, but, um, well, you got more that, chances to do it right. Every off yeah, season no that rolls around. So absolutely. But yeah. Do you like, I mean, the forward constraint like that? I mean, did, I, I found it really useful yeah i i use the med ball the med ball punch run yeah i use the med ball punch run yeah um we don't use it with our uh sprinters but i think for team sport athletes uh so i've used that not in like heavy doses but in the at the end of the dynamic warm-up so you know just do kind of like a traditional ramp you know like ian jeffries raise activate mobilize potentiate and then you know just sprint drills after that and then use it um in sequence uh kind of towards the end of the sprint drill. So after like a A march, A skip, A run, uh, you know, dribble, straight leg run, then the med ball punch run, and then, you know, a few uh, ex- uh, sub-maximal accelerations and then technical flies. That's actually, that's typically how I do my 
uh, top speed days uh, with team sport athletes. So the, so the med ball quantron is definitely in there. No more than two reps. So I don't think I, I use it in heavy doses and maybe I should use it more. I don't know. But yeah, I, I definitely like it. I think um, from my observations, it definitely eliminates backside thigh swing, like in, especially in team sport athletes who, you know, have that problem. Mm-hmm. And it, of course, gives them a target to punch to punch towards. You know, this is interesting because it kind of brings us back towards our initial talking point of today, right? It's this happy medium of, you know, in team sport athletes, and, and that's why that, that kind of Twitter uh, clip was interesting. In team sport athletes, you still got to be doing everything you can to shift them front side and good good pelvis, et cetera. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's really if that starts to be what they look like when they sprint that you have a problem, that they're like – like when they sprint all out, if they're just cycling in place, then it's probably gone too far. But but I've never seen a, a team sport like a team sport athlete where that actually happens. I mean, it, from my experience, every, you know, every team sport athlete you have, you almost have to overemphasize it at, at all times. So, yeah, so, yeah, I like the med ball punch run. Looking at something like the med ball punch run, the, the one time I, I mean, multiple times, but the one team I tried to implement it with, I almost found – and maybe it was the way I was cueing it. So I'd be curious on how you went about it of like, they almost focused so much on trying to like actually drive to the med ball that their steps slowed down so much. Cause it looked like they were trying to like prime time it and just get so right. much air time to actually hit the ball. Yeah. I, um, let's see. I, I don't think I over cue it. I just have the athlete do it for 20 yards with a 10 yard decel afterwards, start with the med ball a little bit in close to the chest and gradually extend it out over the course of the run and just build it up from about 70% to 90% at the end to allow them to build a little momentum and extend the ball out a little further once they get going. So they're really like the last 10 yards of it is where they picked up a little bit of speed and, you know, I, I actually keep the cue real simple. Just just punch towards the ball. That's it. So, um, you know, occasionally I'll see a little bit, uh, you know, leaning back posture. And so I think that, you know, watching from the side on that one and, and just kind of seeing if they're leaning back uh, too much to kind of keep the med ball up there is an issue. I think in that case, if that's the case, if that is happening, A, just cue it or B, just give them a lighter med ball so that they don't have to lean back to counterbalance it. But yeah, yeah. That's cool. All right, cool. So uh, I guess we a good transition for like things you see in sprinters that you don't really need to worry about in team sports um, is so uh, a little bit different. But we were talking before about I, I pulled up the graphics so I can get it correct. Um, you put up a graphic. This is from 2014. This is the one I was thinking about from 2014 with you and uh, Wayne, where you. Um, you were comparing below average, good national class and world-class sprinters. And you were, this is um, kind of theoretical data, but it pretty much matches, like you said, when it it ends up being, and you highlight in this average vertical force on the bottom and it goes up basically. 10th of a body weight, I believe. Yeah. 10th of a body weight for every, you know, basically average vertical force for national class, 420 pounds and average vertical force world-class 440. So right. it's in the, the tag is like a little bit of extra force equals a lot of extra speed. But the point that I, we were going to kind of dive into is that right above that is the one that jumped out to me immediately is that 10 meter fly time. So for the world-class it's 10 meter fly is 0.83 and contact time is 0.083. And this matches up for all the, um, different uh you know delineations of rank basically is that 10 meter fly time matches contact time or contact time is just a a decimal shifted over um yeah yeah, of 10 meter fly and that was fascinating just seeing it and be like oh they literally match up um so i guess in i don't know in in team sports team sport athletes mushy ankles is probably the area where it's like, I mean, pel- I said pro- pelvis is probably number one, just like getting some pelvic control. But then after that, yeah. you know, it's like, coach, I got my 365 pound front squat and I weigh 180 pounds. Like, what's up? And then I would say number two after or one A is the, the mushy ankle. And you see it show up when it's like, hey, you want to run fast? Like, you're not on the ground very long. And right. you need to be prepared to do that. 
And it do, that doesn't just happen. Like that's not something that happens by accident. Now, obviously a fair amount of that is like, you know, you get dudes who would just have Achilles that goes 75% all the way up to their knee and that helps out. But um, I feel like that's not something that's going to happen by accident unless you're intentional about it. It's like when you, maybe you can go for both like in sprinters and team sport athletes, but like how do you go about addressing that, um, that contact time specifically kind of at the foot ankle complex? Yeah, so it's a really interesting topic of conversation. Um, and as you noted, um, the, the contact times, in a sense, don't change that much, right? I mean, the difference between 10 meters per second and 11 meters per second is, you know, nine milliseconds on average. Yeah. Just, you know, if we take that theoretical data, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, as, you, as you accurately noted, that is theoretical data. But if you take an average athlete, with normal running mechanics, those, that's how those numbers play out. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a little difference in contact time goes a long way. Uh, typically, you know, everybody has this, this contact distance. That's the, the distance that their center of mass travels during ground contact of roughly their leg length. So for average height people, that's roughly a meter. So that's why the, the uh, math plays out like that. It's, it's contact distance divided by contact time gives you your velocity. So the kind of the numerical coincidences that you are noting there are, are not coincidences. So, so um, great observation. Uh, to your point about training and you know, how do we affect change there? Um, so it's a great question and it's a super important question. I would actually uh, fully agree with your analysis that if you have a team sport athlete, probably uh, the problem number one is, is pelvic control. It's a great way of putting it, right? But problem, you know, what, if that's 1A, then 1B is what's going on at foot ground contact for, you know, a bunch of different reasons. It could be a heavy lineman that's rear foot striking. It could be a soccer player that's, you know, striking too high on their toes. They run plantar flex a lot and they mush into the ground. Or it could be a football player that's ball of the foot, but when they strike, you know, everything kind of collapses on top of that foot ankle. And so, um, you know, I think it can be addressed a, a couple of different ways. Um, I think bare, some sort of barefoot training is important. I don't have the, you know, the perfect protocol for that. We do some of that with our, you know, Westchester track and field athletes, both as part of their, you know, pre, uh, pre-workout or pre-warm-up uh, a- activities and also as part of their cool down. So we have some, almost some sort of barefoot training in every single day. Um, and then I also think it's important to address it through plyometrics. I mean, just even the most basic of plyometrics, pogo hops, rudiment series, that sort of thing should be addressing that. And, and I think that a lot of times, uh, Joel, to your comment, you know, we address strength up the kinetic chain. Like what can you do in a, in a bilateral stance, you know, in a front squat, back squat, deadlift, whatever. But, and, and I always term that as, you know, the, the engine that generates force. I mean, that's where force gets generated from, but where does it get transmitted? Well, it gets transmitted at the foot ankle ground complex, right? And so we do too much focus on the force generation, if you will, and not enough focus on the force transmission. What are we doing to strengthen where that force ultimately, you know, gets transmitted to the ground, where the rubber hits the road, literally. It'd be like training a boxer and all you do is train the shoulder and the elbow and you never train the wrist. And so they're just, you know, applying force with a limp wrist. And, and I mean, it, it, then it does you limited amount of good. So, you know, as far as the, the barefoot type of training or how to train the intrinsic muscles of the foot and ankle complex, I, you know, uh, I have some ideas. I, I think probably a lot of coaches out there uh, in the performance world, you know, address that already. And I, I think just, Doing the simple things really well as far as plyometric training goes is the other way to, to help make sure that that transfers. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of developmental athletes who just can't do the basic plyos well enough, even if that's just a, a pogo hop on one leg, right? Two legs, it looks okay, but suddenly you go to one leg and it, you know, it's not as reactive as it should be, or it's not as stable uh, or elastic as it should be. And I mean, from a speed standpoint, that that's a problem, right? That's a that's an area of weakness. Since aside from block clearance, every other step after that's you know 
three to five times body weight on one leg in less than a tenth of a second, hopefully, right? So I, I think that's that's my answer. I don't know if that's the right answer. That's my perspective, though, is is try to address the you know the uh, intrinsic foot and ankle strength, you know, um, in the in the weight room, in the clinic, etc., and and try to address the um, the plyometric aspects of it, you know, wherever plyos fit into your training program. So, yeah, no, I, uh, did I, I fully answer your question. I forget if I fully answered. No, absolutely. All That's aspects great. Yeah. And I love the, the note on plyometrics too, because I even had this just a couple of days ago with a girl on, on the lacrosse team where she was doing, doing just a couple, she's like late, late, late stage rehab, like just about to hop back in and was doing some 10 yard accelerations and was getting a little plantar flexed. And I was queuing on some of that. And she said, Oh, like the pogos. And I was like, exactly. exactly. So if nothing else, it, some provides context, like, exactly. It provides context where, cause you know, if somebody's going to do a, a maximal 10 yard acceleration, they're not like, you almost can't, volitionally be like mm, i'm gonna pull my toes up and right. you, know, you have to provide the context elsewhere and they have to have some semblance of what that feels like and looks like or you know feels like both um it's intrigued. funny you mentioned that yeah. sorry to interject yeah because i uh, ironically use it in the same exact way so i was doing a speech playing about two weeks ago for some high school baseball athletes they're between i don't know 14 and 17 so really developmental teams for kids and um you know we were about to do a technical fly where I was just, this is the first time I'd worked with any of these athletes. We weren't going full speed because I didn't know what their, you know, training background was. And so we are just going like 85, 90%. I was just kind of introducing the drill. I was like, uh, it was our third one. I was like, all right, on this one, you know, I just want you to you know, go about 90%. And I just want you thinking about how you contact the ground. And, you know, just kind of threw it out. Them. I was like, what, what part of the foot do you think you should strike the ground with? And, you know, ball the foot. And I was like, yeah, but I need you to strike in the ball of the foot, but, but be reactive, like, you know, really pop on and off the ground. So one of them asked, like, what does that mean? Which is a great question from a 14 year old, right? I mean, reactive, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> so, you know, the obvious answer, and I should have thought of this before, was that, so we just did two sets of, you know, pogo hops. It's on two legs. It's just like, all right, so guys, I just want you to, you know, pretend like you're jumping rope, but you got no rope. Just balls of the feet, pop on and off the ground. And when you're in the air, pull the toes up, basically. And then it was, it was just like that after we did those two sets, it was like, okay, when you run this, this technical fly, when you run this buildup, just strike the ground. Like you just struck it on, on those pogo hops. And yeah, I'm not saying it was perfect far from it, but it's a, like you just said, Joel, if nothing else, it's a good way to provide context on what they need to be doing, you know, when they, when they sprint. So totally agree with you as far as a, you know, a little anecdote you just told. So. Yeah. Yeah. It provides context. I can see it even being more, beneficial in like a in a soccer setting like ac was talking about where they are so used to being plantar flexed and i've noticed that with almost every soccer player you know, i work with they they really are are plantar flexed which is understandable but just yeah. from the way they you know play yeah yeah they're very kelly like the first time i'll ever have freshmen do pogos it's like they're just doing a calf raise the whole time they're yeah. not even like actually attacking the ground or anything like that yeah 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 cool um so uh, shifting a little bit, we touched on it slightly beforehand, and this is this is an area where you've done, you've helped out on some studies, but weren't necessarily super involved. But you have some thoughts that we want to dive into on, like where uh, wearable resistance and like I guess light wearable resistance, um, relatively speaking, and where kind of that could go in terms of, you know. Where does it, I guess, where does it stand in the research? And then what are some maybe non-research level practical things that you're seeing or hearing about from practitioners about, you know, some of the light wearable resistance, whether it's shank, thigh, or just kind of like, um, you know, thorax. Uh. Yeah. So um, I, I guess tracing back to some of our more recent research from the Westchester lab uh, from October of, of 2020, published a study that uh, really highlighted the importance of um, thigh angular velocity, how, how fast the thighs can rotate uh, at, at top speed. And, and um, it was pretty clear that that was, you know, faster in, in our faster runners. We had 
uh, a very heterogeneous database. We had track and field athletes, uh, including a gold medal winner, actually. Um, we had uh, team sport athletes from Westchester, and we had recreationally trained athletes. So, you know, just kind of average Joes. So we had uh, 20 males, 20 females, and and uh, pretty clear cut from the top speed that, that uh, you know, a thigh angular velocity was, was directly correlated with uh, how fast you can run. And, and, you know, we think it affects um, how fast the, the limb ends up attacking the ground, which in turn affects how much force you can apply. And it's really nothing revolutionary there. I mean, there's been research on diangular velocity all the way back to Ralph Mann's work in the late 1980s. It was more just one of those things where we kind of directly investigated it and, and linked it to force application and said, hey, this is something that's been known but maybe this is a more important variable than people have been, you know, paying attention to basically was the, was the bottom line. So if you take that context and simultaneously, as you mentioned, I've been um, lucky enough to be a part of uh, several studies on, on thigh wearable resistance. And yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't hands on the ground as far as the actual training part of those studies, but involved in the experimental design and, and data analysis and manuscript write up, et cetera. And, and I, I think, there's good rationale to investigate um, wearable resistance either on the thigh or the shank uh, because of the rotational overload that it provides. And there's other uh, publications that I'm not a part of, but aware of uh, from John Cronin, Ryu Nagahara, and some really respected biomechanists that have, you know, kind of outlined what we would all intuitively think, which is, hey, you, you put a, you know, weighted sleeve on your thigh that's going to present a rotational overload, right? And and maybe that's just common sense, but they've really kind of quantified that and, and I think done a really good job of it. And so it all aligns, I think, theoretically to say, okay, well, triangular velocity is important. This is a practical way in which you could overload that, not in like a weight room maneuver or something removed from the track, but you could overload that in an on-track or on-field type of activity. So it has a high degree of kind of organic value, if you will. And then, you know, say, okay, well, if we train like this for a period of time, does that improve that quality, which we know is, is linked to speed? And uh, give a shout out to Erin uh, Fieser, who's um, uh, completing her PhD now at John Cronin, and I've been lucky enough to be a part of her committee um, and, and she's kind of spearheading some of that research on the, the wearable resistance on the, on the thigh and the shank. Um, and so I, I think, you know, there's definitely a, a theoretical rationale for why that could be a viable training strategy. I think the research, uh, on the research, the jury's still out a little bit just because it's relatively new. There's been a few studies of, you know, 10, 20 years ago, but as far as kind of this new wave of technology and how sleek it is and how you can really do basic sprint activities while wearing the, the um, uh, resistance on the thigh or the shank. There needs to be kind of this new wave of investigations, which is ongoing. We'll see. I, I think there's a, a lot of potential. I think there needs to be, you know, a few more longitudinal studies to say, hey, this does actually help performance or, you know, no, it's, it's good in rationale, but, you know, it doesn't really help in, in, um, in practice. To me, that I, I think it, it holds promise. It, it definitely fits a mechanism for, why, uh, for what should work. Um, I think as far as the, the thorax resistance, ironically, that's how I got involved with research in the first place. My master's thesis in 2010, which is uh, published in Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, we did resistance sprint training wearing uh, wearing heavy vests, pulling sleds, or just training without, and looked at top speed. And this was in Division Three lacrosse players. Um, and I, I guess, thought that uh, you know, or I was pretty convinced that wearing a vest could potentially help. We, we did a seven-week training study because of the vertical overload that it was presenting. Um, it, it did not help beyond that of the control group, which just did top speed training without without any resistance. Um, and in fact, the, the control group did better, ironically. Uh, the things in the resisted sprint world have come a long way since 2010. 
So, and, you know, and in, in research builds upon itself. That's just the way it goes. In hindsight, I'm not sure if we had selected the proper loads to have those athletes where, you know, we, it was good. We learned a lot, but you know, from that uh, study in particular, I can't say that wearing a weighted vest is beneficial beyond just kind of normal top speed training. I'll be interested to see if future research continues to look into that and, you know, plays around with different loading conditions and comes to any different conclusions. But uh, to tie a bow on the, on the concept. Yeah. I think wearable resistance is, is a really cool idea because I do think that there's a, th a theoretical rationale for it. And in practice, your athletes just wear the sleeve, you know, and then they can just do all the normal training activities. It's, it's, you know, it's not like you're having to, you know, put on a harness and, and, you know, use a sled or whatever else. It's not, not like that's that big of a pain in the butt, but you know what I mean? It's not like, you know, you're taking equipment on, putting equipment off there, you know, it's, it's uh, allows the athlete to, to be in a training session. Um, and, and it's, it's uh, very user-friendly, I guess you could say. So I think that, uh, I think that it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next, next couple of years. So, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't heard of it. I mean, in terms of like the, the shank or the thigh, I hadn't heard of it in the, the terms of like overloading it from a angular velocity standpoint. I guess I'd only really been exposed to it. And we talked to Gabe Sanders about a year ago and he was talking about it when he was at Stanford, he was wearing pretty light. It was, I think it was under, light. under five pound vest just to get some sort of vertical, right. vertical overload, but I hadn't heard of it. I mean, I think I'd seen like Joel Smith wearing some sort of, yeah, shank or thigh. I think Stefan Jones, maybe with some of his cricket bowlers, was doing it. But um, I hadn't heard it in terms of the angle of velocity, which, which is interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, it, that's what John Cronin and Ryu Nagahara, I think Paul McAdams' research looked at, and and you know, it it provides, a, I believe, in their terms, a rotational overload, right? Yeah. No different than you know any other resistive overload you would provide in the weight room, but something that could be viewed as very specific to developing you know, hip angular velocity, power, et cetera, um, you know, with a sp very specific and targeted resistance. So. Yeah. And just, I guess in my head, just to clear this up, is that like the, the angular velocity that delineated, uh, that super differentiated everybody, it's probably going to end up being both, but what did they primarily use, you know, from blocked to ground contact or was that from toe off to blocked? Awesome question. Wow. I can honestly say in the six months since that study was published, I haven't yet been asked that question. That's a great <laughs> question. Uh, both. So okay. we measured it in three different ways uh, in that study. We measured it throughout the course of the entire gait cycle. Mm -hmm. So like the, the, basically the total range of motion throughout the gait cycle divided by the, the time. That was one way we measured it during ground contact only. And then we measured it from block, so peak flexion to ground contact. And all three of them were um, significantly correlated, uh, both across the range of speeds. We did like some maximal and maximal trials. And then if you just honed in only on top speed trials, they were, uh, they were all significantly correlated. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, from a, I, I think you could look at it as being important in any way, uh, any way you slice it. Uh, from a force application standpoint, perhaps the most important way would be from from block to to contact. Um, essentially, you know how how aggressively they're um, attacking the ground. Uh, yeah, so. yeah, that makes sense. I figured it was both because I mean you're not you're probably not going to see anybody who's at an, an elite level from block to contact and then be slow the on the opposite way so well, the cool thing is you really can't and this is not to get too much into the nerdy weeds but you can't because the legs work like scissors yeah, so if it's coming do. down fast here the other leg has to be recovering fast uh, otherwise you turn in circles almost so yeah. it's it's a it's a pretty neat mechanism so yeah so i mean with that kind of the, the switching or scissoring action right. of that exactly. where it's, i mean where it's most visible is when you're in like true flight and where you're not you're not applying any force you're not touching anything i mean you're in flight um that sort of action which is so specific um where do you see like the difference between people who are high level at that specific action versus not like how do you see how would you go about like all right I, some this person is 
you know, all other things considered pretty decent, but they're just lacking in that switching action. Like what are some things that you see that, that hold people back in that area? And then how would you potentially address them? You know, I mean, in a broad sense that that's the million, that's the million dollar question. And when I figure that out in five years, I'll get back to you. <laughs> um, and I'll be a much better coach at that point. No, I, um, that's a great question. That is, you know, really the, the big follow-up to that is, okay, this is important. You know, how can we go about improving this in our athletes? It's easier for me to see and cue an acceleration. So yeah. I'll give you this example. We see this a lot in, in our athletes at, uh, at Westchester. So we're, we're trying to teach them to project out of the blocks and, and their start in step one and step two, right? And, and so, you know, maybe at first, like if they're freshmen or sophomores, when they first come to us, they're not pushing enough. They're not getting big enough splits. So our first step is saying, hey, you got to apply force. So you got to get big, bigger splits, bigger pushes. But then once they've achieved that, once they've started to figure out how to project and push, the next thing that we start to see is they get this big split, kind of what we term the Google image photo. You know, if you type into Google image sprinting, you see this guy with these big splits, right? They get there, but now they just hang it in midair. So their, their thighs are, you know, they get these huge splits. One thigh is really flexed in front of them. One thigh is really extended back behind them. And now there's kind of this almost a pause, this momentary pause, and they're not reversing it and getting back down to the ground. So that's when we really see it and cue it. And it's literally just what, what I just said. It's like, hey, you're getting a big split. That's great. But you got to reverse it and immediately attack the ground. And we do see that sometimes with our USA track and field athletes as well, which is, you know, we're going through the slow motion video with them at the start. And we see a nice split and step, you know, block clearance or step one. But then the, the thigh is just kind of floating up in front of them for just a few frames too many. And it's got it. You got to hit that big flexion and then immediately reverse it back to the ground you could make the same comment at top speed but it's just so much harder to see with the naked coaching eye because yeah. you, you know i mean things are just cycling you know at such a fast rate it, it it's uh, at least my coaching eye certainly can't pick that up so we do address that a lot in acceleration as far as as far as how to improve that at top speed i don't know uh, definitely something that I'm interested in looking into moving forward, which is saying, okay, we're starting to get a handle on how to quantify this. You know, mm -hmm. what do you do with that? If somebody, if it's not, you know, if that magnitude of that, that value is not where it needs to be, can you improve it? I mean, we don't even really know if you can improve it, but if so, what are the best ways to, to go about it? All we really know at this point is Hey, in fast people, generally speaking, that's great. The ability to do that is greater than in slower people. But affecting change is, is really kind of the next, um, the next step in the process from both a research and a, and a coaching uh, standpoint, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. And even too, like I'm thinking about that in an acceleration standpoint from team sport athletes, like providing the context of feeling that like switch, even though it's, it's intentionally much slower and you exaggerate the, um, the flexion in front when we've introduced speed bounds that's been an area where some people have been like oh okay i feel that even though it's it's obviously intentionally more in front and you yeah. almost it's almost the opposite like you're almost delayed no, but I, I know what you're saying i love bounding and speed bounding i think it's just a tremendous exercise for any number of reasons you know the force application the the limb coordination how the you know, shin and, and thigh kind of need to work in harmony on the, on the front side to get the, the thigh up in front. And then, you know, kind of like you just said, once you, once you get to that position, just kind of getting the athlete aware of, okay, from this position, you know, how I got to attack the ground basically. So yeah, I, I think those are great athlete, uh, great uh, uh, speed bounding and, and bounding are great exercises for athletes, you know, provided they're progressed appropriately. So. Yeah, no doubt. Sweet. Awesome. Well, this is right at about an hour, so we can uh, we can wrap up. I really enjoyed this, Ken. This was uh, we were excited for this for a while and did not disappoint. So uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank thanks for having me on. Um, give a little uh, shout out if you have any questions you want to get a hold of me. You can uh, reach out to me at, uh, 
at Ken Clark Speed on social media. And then uh, about uh, six months ago at this point, launched a website, which is kenclarkspeed.com. Um, you can get a hold of me uh, through there on, on email or also just kind of follow that for research updates, coaching updates, et cetera. Sweet. Yeah, we'll make sure to link those in the uh, show notes for you. Great. Well, awesome. thanks, guys. Really appreciate you having me on. Always love talking uh, speed, and this was, a, this was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks, John. Right, thanks for tuning in. That was episode 39 of the Sprint Jump Thrill Performance Podcast uh, with Dr. Ken Clark. Hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next episode.